0: All right, so I actually asked Janice yesterday if we could put the whole chapter of Mark 13 in the bulletin. I was going to challenge Carl to read the whole chapter. Today's going to be probably a little different. And when, you know, Pastor Tim and David, I guess, asked me to preach one more time, and I shouldn't even call it preaching, but share what I've learned from my study in the Gospel of Mark, I agreed to do it, and I didn't realize they were tricking me. Because I don't know if you guys have read chapter 13 of the Gospel of Mark, but chapter 13 is an extremely intense chapter. We're going to talk today about the Antichrist. We're going to talk about tribulation. Pastor Tim, I tell him this this morning. He's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, well, haven't you read chapter 13? It's a super intense chapter. And, you know, we've been going through this study of the Gospel of Mark, And Pastor Tim and David have laid out for us that the Gospel of Mark, we have had the privilege to learn about the life of Jesus. And the Gospel of Mark is all about what? It's all about the revelation of Jesus' deity. So Jesus wasn't just a man. He wasn't just a historical figure. He actually was the Son of God. And then, even almost more importantly for us, it's about the grace that he brings through his Gospel. We're no longer trapped in a systematized religion, it's not about our sacrifices or our seven-step procedure. It's about grace that God has given to us through his son, Jesus. And where we find ourselves this morning is in the chapter 13 of Mark. And this is a very critical moment in Jesus' ministry, and here's why. I want to set up the timeline for us. This is Passion Week. This is in the middle of Passion Week. This would be Wednesday Wednesday. Where we find Jesus this morning, or really in the evening, chapter Mark 13 is in the evening. But if you think back to two sermons ago with Pastor Tim, he shared with us how Jesus entered the city of Jerusalem on a donkey that people gathered and said, Hosanna, and were praising him. Then on Tuesday, he goes to the temple. And if you remember correctly, at the temple, he was very outraged and upset. Because why? There were people in the temple selling and trading and buying things. And they had really, Jesus called it, they had taken the temple and made it a den of thieves. And what Pastor Tim pointed out, which I had never realized before, but this is amazing how the Bible works. How the Bible pulled out in that text, if you guys remember this, he talked about the dove. And he talked about, you know, they were probably buying and selling multiple things in the temple, but the scripture specifically mentions doves. And when he laid out the argument that when you look at how doves were used in every other area of scripture, it was a symbol of hope. It was a symbol of this grace. And so Jesus was sharing with us, and he was definitively telling us, That grace is not something, the gospel is not something that can be bought. It's not something that you can sell to somebody. It's not something you can obtain by your works. It's by him. It's through his grace that we can be set free and be made right with God. And so that leads us to Wednesday. So on Tuesday, he drives the buyers out. He drives the sellers in the temple out. And he comes back on Wednesday to the temple, Jesus does. And he teaches all day. And here's why it's significant, Mark chapter 13. This is the last day in Jesus' public ministry. This is the last day Jesus will teach publicly. It's the last day he will minister to people publicly. Because on Thursday, he will gather with the disciples with the Passover. On Friday, he will be tried and executed. And on Sunday, he will rise from the dead. And so where we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13 is at the end of the Wednesday where he's taught all day. He's taught all day in the temple, and he calls his disciples to gather together. And he, they set out, out of the temple, and they start journeying, making the journey to the Mount of Olives. And when they come out, and I'm going to go through, just so you guys understand how I'm going to do it this morning, we're really going to read a lot of scripture this morning. It's maybe going to be a little bit more Bible study-ish than maybe a sermon. But I want to walk us through each piece of the sermon in the scriptures today and just pull out some key points that I think we need to recognize, and then apply it to our lives and our mindsets and our hearts and our race that we're running to follow hard after Christ. So you guys can follow along in Mark 13 if you want to. But where we find ourselves is chapter 13, verse 1, where Jesus is leaving the temple with his disciples. Remember, it's his last day of public ministry. It's his last day of public teaching. And he's leaving with his disciples after teaching all day long. And his disciples, walking out of the temple, are going... They say this, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Then Jesus replies and says, Do you see all these great buildings? Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Now, there's two things I want to raise as points here. One is, and this is a little bit of a sub point, but follow along with me. One is, Jesus is stating very clearly. In this passage, that his focus is not on materialistic things, but on the purity of your heart. And we see this as a continuation of, if you remember the story of the widow giving the mite. And she gave less material-wise, but she gave more because of, out of the intentions of her heart and the purity of her heart. And the reason why I know this is because when I looked at this and said, okay, the disciples are in all in wonder of the temple. So what is the temple? So I went and researched the temple. Did you know the temple took eight decades to build? 84 years to build the temple. Anything that takes 84 years to build is obviously magnificent. Not only that, the temple was engraved in gold. So Herod had it engraved in gold. It was built on huge stones. Actually, archaeologists can't understand. They're perplexed if you study it. How the temple was even built, because the stones that were used were like 50 feet by 25 feet, massive stones. So it's not surprising that the disciple here is in all in wonder of this temple. But Jesus turns to him and says, I tell you this this building's gonna be destroyed. No stone will be set on another. And what's so interesting here is you have to put yourself in the mindset of the disciples. Think about this. They start following Jesus. They give up what they own. They give up their life, and they start following Jesus. They come to understand Jesus is the Son of God. So now on this journey of ministry with Jesus, they've gone through suffering. They've forborne or forbeard. They have witnessed. They have served with Jesus. And now they're reaching a point where they're entering Jerusalem. It's kind of a celebration. What you have to think is that they probably are excited, and their excitement has escalated at this point in time. Why? Because they believe the kingdom of God is at hand. They believed that God's kingdom, that yes, this is the Son of God, this is what the prophets of old talked about, where he's going to establish his kingdom, and he's going to put Israel back in its right place. And so for if you think in their mindset, when they show Jesus and go, look at this amazing temple, and he turns to them and says, all of this will be destroyed, they were probably shocked. The disciples were probably shocked because They're thinking, what do you mean it's going to be destroyed? It's the time. The kingdom's at hand. You're going to rule. And Jesus turns to them and goes, no, all of this will be destroyed. So they continue on their journey up the Mount of Olives. And this is what stirs this next question. And really, the uh, chapter 13 of Mark, I've kind of broken down into four different parts. The first part is Jesus' prediction, his prophetic prediction of the temple destruction. The second part is his answer to the disciples' question of what's to come and when his kingdom will be established in this current reality from when he was actually resurrected to when he comes again. The third part is actually what's to come in the end times. And then the fourth part is his application to us of how then as believers and disciples we shall live. And so when you look at this, when I looked at this verse, I went also to Luke 21, Matthew 24, and Matthew 25 because it's the same account but different people writing about this same story. And what I came to understand is what the disciples are asking here in verse 3. So after they've left the temple and Jesus told them it's going to be destroyed, they then say, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? When I have understand the full picture of this, what they're truly asking here is, Jesus, when will you be king? When will you reign? all this that you've talked about when will this come to fruition and Jesus then turns and responds and what he does is he shares with them what's the reality of when he dies and rises again to when he comes again what is the re- he doesn't know the time because we'll learn in this verse that no one knows the time except the father but what we learn is the reality of what we're going to experience in this time of his death and resurrection to the time he comes again. And so I'm going to read this real quick so you guys can just hear the grim reality that we're up against in this life as believers and followers of Christ. Jesus said, this is in verse 5 if you want to follow along, Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. So it's just the beginning of what's to come. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local council and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as a witness to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Jesus, just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Brother will even betray brother during this period of time to the death. A father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. I don't know about you guys, but does that sound... If you were a follower of Jesus at this time, and you came into Jerusalem, and you're expecting the kingdom to be at hand, and you turn to Jesus as a follower of Jesus for many years now, and you ask him, when is your kingdom going to be at hand? And he turns to you and tells you this reality. How many of you would be excited to continue on? Because I know, when I look at this, this to me the first point I would make, the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel does not live in this text right here. It doesn't live in this text. This reality that, the, that Jesus is sharing with us is not a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. In fact, I wrote down the, the point here, there is no hope for a better world. This world we live in, if you're hoping that this world's going to get better, if you're hoping that the, the transformation in technology we have in education is going to improve this world, in fact, we see technology growing and, and, and evolving. We see education growing and evolving. But what do we see? We see morality decaying. We see morality going down. And it's what Jesus says is going to happen. We live in a broken world that is going to continue to be broken. It's going to continue to be broken, and we have to endure. But the second point I want to make out of this is back to what Pastor Tim has been sharing with us all along in the Gospel of Mark. Mark is about what? Revealing the deity of Jesus. And right here, this passage, these two parts that I've just read, the part of Jesus predicting the destruction of the temple and the part of Jesus predicting what the reality of the life we're going to live after he rises from the dead till he comes again, because he hasn't come again yet, this reality, he's foretold now what it's going to be and guess what it's a hundred percent accurate it's a hundred percent accurate and this is evidence of the deity again of jesus because here's why the temple 40 years later from when this is written so this was said in 30 a.d in 70 a.d the temple is destroyed by the romans the romans come in and besiege and they lay hold to the city and destroy the temple So Jesus was right 40 years before it happened. Only God can know that. Only God can know that. Not only is he right about the building being destructive, so if you're a cynic out there, I'm a cynic, well, every building's going to decay. Every building eventually... It's easy for me to say Calvary Vision will eventually be destroyed because every building eventually probably will decay and be knocked over or whatever... But he not only does that, he gets very specific. What does he say? He says there won't be a single stone on another stone. And what's interesting, when I was reading some Jewish history excerpts, the Romans came into the city, besieged the city. They then pushed the Jews back into the one safe harbor they have, which is the temple. Then, you know what they do to the temple? They set it on fire. And what it does, you know how I told you it's engulfed in gold, or engraved in gold? The gold melts. So they come into the temple, they lay siege of it, they kill everybody who doesn't flee and is saved. They kill everybody. And the Romans don't want to leave without any plunder. So what do they do? They overturn every stone to get the gold. How amazing is that, that the Lord is predicting the destruction of the temple, that no stone will be on itself. It's another example of Mark, the gospel of Mark, showcasing the deity of Jesus, that only God would know this. He is accurate in his prediction of specific things, and he's also accurate in his prediction of the nature of this life that we're living on this corrupt earth. All of us, when I read this, can all of us attest and testify to this is the reality in which we live? What does Jesus say in verse 5 through 13? He says there's going to be what? Wars? There's going to be famine. There's going to be desolation. Not only these natural disasters that are going to come up against us, but we're going to be persecuted. How many of you are constantly hearing of wars? How many of you are constantly hearing of earthquakes, of natural disasters happening? I did a little research myself. From the 1980s till today, over half a million people have died in war every year. If you think of World War II, it was like 70 million people. If you think of the bubonic plague, over 60% of Europe was wiped out of their population. They predict about, or they they say about 100 million people. Why am I sharing this with you? Because what God has shared about our reality after He dies and rises again and goes back to be with God, to when He comes back, He says, what is it going to be? It's going to be a reality of a broken world. That is desolate, that has famines, that has earthquakes, that has all these things. So he has predicted again what we live, and I think we can all attestify to that. I love what John MacArthur says here, it's amazing. He goes, The Bible is always or always perfectly corresponds to reality. And I have found this to be true in my own life. You guys know I run a company. I am amazed at the principles of the Bible when I apply them in the management of my employees, how accurate it is. I'm amazed. But John MacArthur is saying even more than that. He's saying about the history. But he goes, the Bible always perfectly corresponds to reality. When the Bible says something will be a certain way, that is exactly how it will be. It will be what Scripture says it will be, both in general terms as well as in absolutely specific terms. You see in this passage, you have the specific event of the 70 AD, the temple destructing the stones, and then also the general prediction of how the world is. The reason why I point this out is because what we are finding here in Mark chapter 13 is his disciples, again, are asking the number one question, the question we would ask Jesus Jesus, when are you going to establish your kingdom? When is pain and suffering going to stop? When do we, why, why do we have to continue to live in this world, in this broken world? And Jesus then tells them what the reality is that they're going to live in, not the time it will be solved, but the reality they're going to live in from the time he dies and resurrects, goes to God, until he comes back. And he's accurate in it. And what we're about to read is we're about to read what God says about him coming back about this idea of the tribulation. And so I don't know about you, but for me, if he's right in the temple and that being destructed, and he's right in his, of how he's predicted the reality to be when he went to heaven, well, you better believe he's right in what he's about to say in the tribulation that's coming. There's two points I want to make, though, before we move there. One is, I want to make the point that we as Christians, God has given us This is an expectation of what to expect. One of the hardest things for me in my life is when I have expectations of how something should be, and it doesn't end up that way, it's super, super painful. Take my relationship with Megan and my marriage with Megan. If my expectation is for Megan to, to you know, love me and, and always be you know, by my side and all these things, and it doesn't end up that way, it causes tension in my life, in my relationship with Megan. And so clear expectations are so critical in your marriage, in your work, and God is giving us an expectation of what to expect as Christians. All of us live in this world right now. So when you are upset that you're not getting the job you want, if you're upset because of the famine, the destructions, the things that are happening, understand it's what he said it would be. And that leads me to the second point I want to make before moving to the future prophecy and the future that God's talking about here, is this verse, when I read it, I struggled with it because in verse 13, or this passage, in verse 13 it says, everyone will hate you Because of me. Because of Jesus, everyone is going to hate me. And then he says this, which I felt contradicted Mark. He goes, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Other translations, the one who endures till the end will be saved. Well, I thought Mark was about what? Grace. It's not Juliana's ability to endure that saves her, Right? It's not So why is the scripture saying the ones who stand firm to the end will be saved? And this was a struggle for me. As I looked into it, though, what I have come to realize what this scripture is saying is that this is going to weed out the false believers, the people who have a weak faith. And I'll read this to you guys. It says, basically, you don't earn salvation by endurance. By standing firm in your faith does not earn you salvation. You prove you have the real thing by endurance. Superficial faith will collapse under persecution. In 1 John 2.19, they went out from us because they were not of us. This is the basic gospel truth. Authentic God-given faith will endure. Why? Because he tells us. Because the Holy Spirit will provide strength. God will provide you grace. And he says that, if you see, just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Here's the point that I think this passage is making here, is that it's not about your endurance and your standing firm that's going to make you a Christian and make you have, uh, be saved at the end. It's this, trouble, deception, persecution, suffering will burn up the chaff. It will reveal the shallow, weedy, rocky ground of false profession. And under these kind of pressures, superficial interest in Christ will have no endurance. So, what the point is, is that you don't earn your salvation by enduring. You don't earn your salvation putting a helmet on and buckling down and going, I'm just going to wait this out. You demonstrate your salvation by enduring. Salvation is a gift of grace. John MacArthur says it's authenticated in tribulation and in trial. Your salvation is authenticated in tribulation and trial. And that's why James says, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing what? That the testing of your faith produces endurance. So your true faith is not your, your salvation is not given to you, but anything but the grace of God, but it's authenticated in your ability to stand firm in the faith. True faith is strengthened to endure. So let's move on very quickly because time's flying. Uh, so we'll move on very quickly to this next um, point, and I'm going to s- kind of speed over this because we could do a whole study on the end times, and whew, it's over my head. As I really was diving into this, I was blown away. I'm not just saying this. Like even singing the song, we sang, "Who's able to break the seal?" That's talking about Jesus. Jesus in Revelations breaks the final seal. That, that song that we just sang is amazing when I was in it. I didn't know that before until this study until I went through this study, so I thought that was amazing. But I want to read to us, because here Jesus has told us what our reality is, but now he's going to tell us what the end times are going to bring. He's going to predict for us and tell us what we need to be aware of, and I want to just share it with us and read it to us so we can understand this is just the beginning. He gives the example that this is like childbirth, and in childbirth, now, I've never had the privilege of having a child, but I've been told that the pains in the beginning are far apart from each other. But as the end draws near, they get closer and closer, and they intensify, and it gets harder and harder and harder. And Jesus is telling us that's what the end times will bring, that it's going to intensify from here. So we pick up, really, in verse 14, and it says, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. The abomination that causes desolation, and all of you, I would encourage you to go into a study of revelations, but this is the prophet Daniel, talks about this, but this is the Antichrist. The abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, refers to the Antichrist standing in the rebuilt temple in the nation of Israel, claiming to be God. God. And I would encourage you all to study it. It's amazing. And I share with Megan today, it blows my mind, the nation of Israel formed back together in 1948. So the nation of Israel got scattered, and the nation of Israel formed back together in 1948. Why do I share that? Why does that make me smile? It makes me smile because no other nation has ever gotten back together. It never happened. And the reason why I smile is because for Jesus' scripture to come true, The nation of Israel, the temple, has to be rebuilt by the nation of Israel. And so it's it's amazing when you study the scriptures, it really is amazing the detail that has woven together, that has to come together for Jesus' word to be accurate and true. And there's nothing else that it can be besides that he is God, that he's the creator. But let's walk through this. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Why does it say let the reader understand? It's because the people who are going to read this are not the disciples. The abomination that causes desolation does not happen with the disciples. It, it's going to happen. It could be our generation. could not be could be our generation, but let the reader understand and then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the housetop go down or enter in their house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those day, days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now, and never to be equal again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive, but for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe him. For false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive. If possible, even to deceive the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. Sounds kind of like a movie, I told Megan. It's like a terrifying movie that even so much the Bible, Jesus is telling us, hopefully it doesn't happen in winter. Hopefully it doesn't happen when you're pregnant and have child. That's how bad it's going to be at the end times. That this desolation is going to happen. And then he moves on to saying, But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. Then he gives us an illustration. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and, it leaves, and its leaves come out, you know that, it is, that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. How many of you guys knew that when the sun darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken, you know Jesus is coming? That's what this is saying. We don't function in that reality. I don't function in that reality. I didn't, when I first read this passage, I'm like, why don't I take this literally? Like, why don't I? This is telling me what to look for because I know the end is near. I know this time of turmoil. And then when this happens, just like this simple illustration of the fig tree, you know it's going to be summer. You know the end is near. So we're not going to go into the details, because this requires a whole, it could be hours and hours and weeks and weeks, and maybe we'll do it in the future, of what all these things mean. Why is it going to be this way? But the question that pops into my mind to get to the application of this message, and I hope it pops into yours, is I want to know, Jesus, what should I be doing? What should I do? Because you're telling me it's going to be grim right now, Luke, Till I come back. And when you see the sun darken, when you see the stars fall from the sky, be ready because I'm coming. I want to know what I should be doing. And that's, I think, exactly what Christ answers for us in this next passage from 32 to 37. He says, but about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Be alert, you do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away, he leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, going each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at the dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, Watch. Now, I screamed that today when I was uh, kind of practicing with Megan. She said, are you going to yell watch in the the sermon? I said, I might. Watch. How many of us are watching? I'm preaching at myself here. Meaning, like, how many of us go through our day-to-day life with this attitude? With being on guard, being alert, the end times are near. Or how many of us are focused on our jobs, our careers, our families, our relationships, our materialistic things, the building a temple for 80 years to gold and saying, God, look what I did. The application here is take heed. Take heed. Be alert. Be on guard. The end can come at any moment. And what I love about this is in Luke 21.36, it says, Take heed, pray. It says this in Luke 21.36, We must pray that we may be found worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass. Remember, Luke 21 is the same account of what we're reading here in Mark chapter 13. See, most people, when they don't know when Jesus is coming, A lot of people will say, well, it doesn't matter because we don't know the day, we don't know the hour, it doesn't matter. Others have the idea, we don't know when Jesus is coming, so we have to find a date and set a date. Have you guys ever heard of the false teachers and the false prophets of when Jesus is going to come back? So they try to set a date. I believe what this text is saying, the right response for us to be is, I don't know when Jesus is coming, so I have to be alert, I have to be eager And ready for his coming when he comes. And when you live in this reality. It gives us a sense of urgency. And I think it will make us bold. In sharing the gospel. Think about your work. When your boss leaves. And who you are when your boss leaves. Versus when they come back. And your hope is as as a boss. Is that they're the same. When you leave. But how many of us are listening to see if they're going to come around the corner, and it's that idea that all of us should be functioning in a, in a state of this place is not my home. It's a grim reality. There is an amazing time coming for all of us with Jesus, but how many of us are enduring and eagerly waiting, watching, praying, staying on guard, staying alert, that's the endurance. How many of us are doing that? I know myself, I'm not. I know the, the level, uh, this almost is a story to me. It's like a story I'm reading in a book. But it's reality, reality. If we truly believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who he said he was, and that Mark is explaining to us his life and his ministry, he's telling us, be on alert and on guard. And this will cause us to think about everything we're doing. Because if God came back right now, would you be sleeping? Would you be in sin? What would you be doing when God comes back?